So this psalm is about you and me. Um, I've said to you many, many times, if you don't know the truth about yourself, you'll never understand the Gospel. We must understand not only who God is, we must understand who we are before God. And that's what this psalm is about. I'm going to begin tonight um, with a quote, and some of you old-timers maybe can finish it for me. Um, Yes, of course, you know who it's from. Uh, I won't mention his name. There's no need to mention his name. Uh, Well, for those of you who are new, his name is John Piper, my favorite preacher in the world. Um, I was reading one of his books some years ago, and this was in that book, uh, Beyond the Bounds, where he's critiquing open theism, which I don't want to get into that, but... um, And he says, open theism, bad theology. He says, bad theology... Does anyone know how to finish that sentence? Any of you old-timers? Bad theology hurts people. And I thought, that's so simple, but it's so powerful. It's so urgently necessary that we understand that it's bad theology that got us into this mess. Bad theology hurts people. It damns people. I've always loved that quote. What is bad theology? Well, it's believing a lie about God. It's believing that you and your sin is more important and that you and your sin will make you happier than God could ever make you. Beloved, that is damning theology. So where did it start? We know where it started. We've talked about this several times in the last six to seven months or so. We've talked about it in young adult Bible class. Where does it begin? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have everything. You know, it's like God, as one theologian said, God goes out of His way to make sure that we don't rebel and sin against Him. Everything north, south, east, and west of the tree is ours to have and enjoy. Right? And Satan comes and Satan says, Indeed, has God said. He attacks the Word. He's still attacking the Word. We talked a lot about that last week. What is bad theology? Eve believed the lie. Adam believed the lie about God, that God was holding out on them, that there was more joy to be had. It's in that tree. He said, you can't eat. It's in that tree. That's bad theology. They believed a lie about God. Some of you sitting in here tonight are still believing a lie about God. It's why, it's why people love themselves right more than they love God. It's why, we talked about it last week, it's why all the world religions exist. It's why pseudo-Christianity exists. It's about a kind of self-righteousness. Bad theology is why people kill and covet and steal. It's why people abuse and become addicted to drugs and alcohol. It's why people are angry and unloving and ungracious and unkind and ungrateful and are arrogant. They are so self-consumed 
It's why men and I understand now even some women look at pornography and are addicted to it. It's why people live well beyond their means because they love the stuff. They think the stuff is going to make them happy. It's why nations war against nations. It's, bad. it's all bad theology. It's why children old enough to know better disrespect their parents. It's why people use profane language. It's just another small act of rebellion against God. It's why spouses abandon one another. It's why, why people hoard money and are selfish and do not give. It's why people complain and feel sorry for themselves. They're the victim! Right? It's, it's the, the mantra of, of humanity. I'm a victim! I'm a victim here! Well, <laughs> you read your Bible, you realize, no, you're not the victim, you're the rebel. This is God's diagnosis of humanity. It's why people complain, as I said. It's why mothers and fathers abort their children. A pathological selfishness. It's why people fornicate and commit adultery and engage in homosexuality. It's a rebellion against the standards of God. It's why mankind hates. It's why we are greedy. It's why we are envy. It's why we are vain and proud and insecure and self, uh, selfish. And it's why we're bored and indifferent and f having feelings of superiority or feelings of inferiority. It's having a lack of purpose. It's being discontent. It's being hopeless, etc., etc., etc. It's bad theology. Because we're not looking at God. If we're looking at God, we don't believe that sin could ever make me happier than Him. You know, mankind, it's what sin is. You just declare your independence from God. I just, I'm declaring my independence from God. I don't care what God says. I'm going to live my life. And God gives you that prerogative. You have that prerogative. Right? But we will all stand in front of Him one day. Of course, all the things I've said plus the, the myriad of other things I don't have time to say, why men engage in all manner of wickedness, also why disease exists, why illness exists, why death exists, why natural disaster exists, why there's any pain, any tears, any tragedy, or any calamity, it all goes back to Genesis chapter 3. We talked about it Wednesday night at Bible study. You know, I always get the question. It's okay to ask the question. But to me, it's an uninteresting question. Uh, why, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? Well, I counted the pages. It takes me five pages in my Bible to get to the answer. And it's kind of like I want to say, why don't you read what God says about it, right? Why are you asking me? It's five pages in. Why is there evil in the world? What do I tell you multiple times a year? Why does it exist? Why is the world messed up? Someone tell me. Why are we not still living in paradise? Tell me. Because we sinned. We rebelled against a good God. 
I'm only five pages into my Bible and I already know the answer to that mysterious question that everybody seems to stumble over. We unleashed it, right? We did that. It's not God's fault. And there's much I can say about that, but we will move on. As I said earlier, you know, I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this. Talks about free will. You know, this is the question I get. Well, okay, you, you get somebody to acknowledge, oh, okay, I see that in Scripture. It's my fault. It's mankind's fault. We all own it. We were in the loins of Adam. We have to own it. Romans chapter 5. Okay, I see it. You can get somebody to agree. Okay, I see it in the Scripture. But you know what the very next question I get is? <laughs> this is astonishing. You know what the very next question I get is? Well, why did he put the tree there? Well, why did he give us free will? Do you understand the logic? It's not my fault. I'll not take responsibility for, for my sin against God. It must be God's fault somehow. He put the tree there, right? He gave me free will. And this is what I wanted to say. I love what C.S. Lewis says about, about this issue, this question of free will. He said, God created a real world, not a toy world or a puppet world. God created a real world where His moral creatures could choose for or against Him. Again, there's 20,000 sermons there, but we will move on. It's laughable if it weren't so sad Mankind is like a two-year-old who gets what he wants. Those of you who are parents, you understand. The two-year-old gets what he wants. And then when it doesn't satisfy him as he thought it ought, he begins to throw a tantrum. He begins to whine and moan and cry and throw a tantrum. This is what mankind has done. Right? It's what we have done. Blame God. You know, who did Eve blame the serpent? And Adam blamed Eve. And then he even pulled God into the, the blame. He said, Adam actually said, well, it was the woman that you gave me. You know, nobody takes responsibility. <laughs> but God in the Bible is going to make sure anyone who reads it is going to take responsibility for their sin. It's not anyone else's fault but yours. And God help you if you blame God for the evil in the world. God help you. The Bible is clear. It's our fault. It's our fault. You know, evil. I'll give you one def definition and I'll move on. I've always loved this. It's not a complete definition. It, it's, it's, it's just helpful in a, maybe a, in, in one facet of the question. Cold is the absence of heat. Dark is the absence of light. And what evil is, is the absence of the love of God in the heart of His moral creatures. 
Does God create evil? I think that argument would say no, He does not create evil. He creates moral creatures with free will. It's an absence of love for God in the heart of God's higher creatures. And parenthetically, I just want to say, regarding the first three chapters of Genesis, I know, and that's where I'm pulling this from, Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, the rebellion of man. Uh, I know that much of the world, if not all of the world, and even much of the, what is called the modern church like to mythologize the first few chapters of Genesis. It's all mythology. It's allegory. It's parable. No. Go talk to your Hebrew scholar. It's historic. It's written in a genre that history is written in. You know, it's why Satan loves to try to dispense with the first three chapters of Genesis. He likes to make it look foolish in the eyes of the sophisticated, the urbane, and the educated. He's good at his job. He's got academia and, and the media beating the drum. It's allegory, man. You can't take it literal. You know. Yeah. So, I want to say this and I'll move on. Adam must be historical or New Testament Christianity comes undone. Let me just say it that way. And if you have a problem with a little interpretation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I just encourage you to do your own homework. You're never going to take my word for it if you're a skeptic in this regard. You do your own homework before God. Ask the Spirit of God to teach you. You know, we take these, these, uh, <laughs> these very weak hypotheses and we lay them on the text and try to make the text fit into the hypotheses of man. Um, okay, it's my second book, so I'll stop there. Um, I could go on, but I won't. Let me just say this. I love what John Lennox says. John Lennox! John Lennox, uh, math professor, Ph.D. at Oxford. I always loved what he says. You know, as, as he was growing up, he said, you know, I couldn't believe... He said, until I could believe the first three chapters of Genesis, I could not believe the rest of the Bible. It's why Satan attacks the creation account and he attacks the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. He wants you to believe it's a parable. It's what he wants you to believe. Close parentheses. So, that brings me, I think, more or less, to Psalm 53. I hope you have your Bibles open or your electronic device. Um, some of you probably don't know that the first three chapters of Psalm 53 are uh, repeated two other times in the Bible verbatim. Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is almost identical to Psalm 53. It's the only time it happens in the Psalter. 
And then in Romans 3, God says exactly the same thing about you and about me. He says it three times in the Bible. At least three times. Verbatim. We always, if you study Scripture, you go to seminary, the first thing they'll teach you is, one of the first things they'll teach you is that repetition is emphasis. God wants you to understand who you are before Him. God means for mankind to understand the consequences of what they have done. So Psalm 53, Psalm 14, and Romans 3, it's who you are, it's who I am. Some of you don't know this about yourself yet. But here's the deal. Any good preacher knows you have to get someone lost before you can ever get them found. And God's going to tell us in Psalm 53, every man on the planet is hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. There's no recourse. We're all damned. Apart from the astonishing coming and work of Jesus Christ. So this is a merciful revelation of God that we might understand our predicament, that we would not be deceived about it, that we would indeed understand it and own it for ourselves. The fool, verse 1, Psalm 53, has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. And I'm going to park on verses 1, 2, and 3, so don't worry. It's only six verses in the psalm. Uh, but I'm going to park on these three verses. These are, this is the heart of the psalm. Don't worry, I'll get finished on time. I looked up the word fool. The Hebrew means a vile and senseless person. You guys know what it means. You, if you use a modern thesaurus, it'll tell you it means stupid, idiotic, imbecilic, uh, moronic, and being a simpleton. Yes, I know this is harsh language. These, these are not my, this is not my word. This is the Word of God. I've told you this many times. It's what I learned when I went through the Gospel of John, preaching through the Gospel of John. It, this truth finally came home to me. It's not that men don't know. <laughs> I tell you this all the time. It's not that men don't know that God is there. It's that they do know. And they don't want the true God. They may make up some false gods who they like better, but again, this is important for you to understand. It's not that men don't know. Every man that rejects Jesus Christ knows full well He's God. Romans chapter 1. No one gets to stand in front of their Maker and say, I didn't know. It's written on your heart, beloved. It's written on your heart. It's not only written in the created order, it's written on your heart. Romans chapter 1. I will read it to you. Because that which is known about God is evident within mankind, for God made it evident to mankind 
For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been, oh, clearly seen, being, oh, understood through what has been made, so that they are, oh, without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And here we come back to the fool. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Why is the atheist a fool? Because he is enveloped in the revelation of God both without and within. He knows it. And he denies it. That is the consummate definition of a fool. Right? He knows it. Down, to, down in his DNA, it's how God made humanity. You know it down in your DNA. And what does God say about mankind there in Romans 1? And mankind holds it down. He holds down the truth. He suppresses. He suppresses the truth. Only a fool would ignore the obvious. And some of you know the most famous fool in the world. Who knows his name? Who's the most prominent atheist in the world? Who's the most famous fool in the world? Richard Dawkins? Have you read his book, The God Delusion? I tried to read it. I like to read stuff like this sometimes because it makes me so mad, right? It gets me so jazzed about the biblical gospel. But it was so pathetic, I could not finish it. I got about a third through it, and I had to put it down. It was just sad. It made me sad. It was not only, it was not only deficient intellectually, it just made me sad for a man who thinks like this, right? The title should have been The Self-Delusion. <clears throat> On page 31, he calls God every name in the book. I mean, it's just awful the things he says about the God of the Bible. And I ask myself, why does a man get so worked up about a non-existent God? Why do men get so worked up about a non-existent God? Why does he write a 300-page book about a non-existent God? Why is he exercised about a non-existent God. Well, we know, don't we? It's not that men don't know. It's that men do know. And they will not have the biblical God over them. That's the point. It's not that God's not there. They know it in their soul He's there. But they are the fool because they are denying it. They are pushing it down. They are pushing it away. You know, there was a day when only the village idiot was an atheist. And now it's academically respected. The media respects atheism. It's their prerogative. They can be an atheist if they want, although we know scripturally they're not. You know, it's the thing I love to say to atheists. And I, you know, make sure they don't have a clean shot at my jaw when I say it. But, you know, I, I like to say, well, you may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. Because the Bible says you know. The Bible says you know. 
So, I think it's important for us to understand <laughs> Satan's never had to change the lie. I mean, an atheist is the easiest mark on the planet, right? A- Satan's never had to change the lie. The lie is you can be like God. You can be your own God. Yeah, I think fool is the right word. And I want you to understand, beloved, there are two kinds of atheism here. This is being talked about in verse 1. The overt atheist, he proclaims it, he proclaims his stupidity, okay? For the whole world to see. He proclaims his stupidity. Although in these last days, um, atheism is seen as, as respectable. Although it's irrational and illogical, uh, on every conceivable uh, angle, um, But there's also this covert atheism. Do you know what I'm talking about? This covert atheism? It's men and women who profess to believe in a God, but it never changes the way they live. It's it's, it's a practical atheism, right? There's the overt atheist, and then there's the covert atheist. And this is what we see most often in what is called the Christian church. You have a lot of people just simply playing games with God. They, they you know, attend sometimes on Sunday and, and they say they're Christians, but they live practically like an atheist. They never bring God into their life at all. Ever. It's what we talked about, was it last week, <clears throat> when Jesus said, uh, you honor me with your lips, but what? Your heart is far from me. It's practical atheism. It's what He was indicting the first century Jew about. You're practically an atheist. In every way that matters, you're an atheist. What what does the Bible say? (laughs) What does the Bible say? Is just acknowledging and assenting to facts, is that Christianity? Oh, guess who believes everything Jesus ever said? Guess who believes it? Guess who knows it's true? Satan. He believes everything Jesus ever said. He knows who Jesus is. Mental assent mental is nothing. It's nothing. If you're still practically an atheist in the way you live, the way you think, the things you do, Practical atheism. Uh, R.C. Sproul has a great quote on this. He's a well-known American theologian. He says, your average Christian, professing Christian, is merely a theoretical theist whose day uh, today life reveals a practical kind of atheism. Charles Spurgeon said it well, 19th century English preacher. The atheist denies God. Okay, he denies Him. He owns his own stupidity. He denies God. But the covert atheist, he says there is a God, he just forgets about Him. Which one's the biggest fool? <coughs> oh, I, I, I say, yeah, I, I believe there's a God. I, I call myself a, a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I, but he, he forgets it. When he goes out this door, 
He forgets about him when it comes to his money, when it comes to his marriage, when it comes to his kids, when it comes to his job, when it comes to doing his taxes, when it comes to loving his neighbor. He never thinks about God at all. So I want you to understand, <laughs> we're talking about overt and covert atheism here. And did you notice there in verse 1, uh, the, the overt and covert atheists, they are corrupt and commit abominable injustice. You know, you and I were made to, to, to bring glory and honor to God and to, and to spend our lives bringing, yeah, uh, pointing at Him, being an image bearer, right? And it is corrupt and abominable when we are practical atheists. What is, we talked about this Wednesday night too, what is the greatest commandment? You guys know this. What, how does Jesus su summarize the whole, the whole of the law? How does He do it? Man was created to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's what David is saying here, or the psalmist is saying here. It is David, I just remember. It's what he's saying here. You're created for that. And when you don't do that, you are corrupt and guilty of abominable injustice, wickedness, iniquity. What the Word means. Did you notice the text says, no one does good. Oh, aren't you glad you came tonight because you thought you did. You thought you did good. You have to understand the argument here, right? It's a vertical argument. It's not that men can't do horizontal good in some sense in a relative sense, but when we're talking about absolute goodness, when we're talking about infinite goodness, when we're talking about divine goodness, man can't even get uh, on the field. I mean, we, we can't get there. It's what the text is saying. You can't do any good that pleases God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in you and the work of Jesus and His shed blood on you. It's what's being communicated here. We can do some horizontal good. But I love what one theologian said. I've never forgotten this. I heard this guy say this like 25 years ago. And he was, he was, he was uh, comparing the prostitute in the street to the debutante. And the one who was planning the, the charity ball. And that looks good, right? It's what theologians call a bad good. But it looks good. They're planning the, the, to plan the charity ball. That's a good thing. But there's so much pride and vanity and self-righteousness in it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Any good that you and I try to do apart from God, it's tainted by sin. It's always tainted by sin. Always tainted by sin. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. What was the, what was the confession of the good prophet of God when he stood in the presence of God in this vision? Isaiah chapter 6. What was the confession of the good prophet? He was a lot better than you, I bet. What was his confession? Woe is 
Me. I am a man of unclean lips standing before infinite holiness. This is the picture you and I need to understand about ourselves. You say, Jim, well, I pay my taxes. I, I don't beat my wife. I don't kick the dog. You know, I, I try to be a good person in the community. Those are horizontally, that's fine. That's good. But are you doing it for the glory of God? Or is there some other reason you're really doing it? Maybe not least of which is, I'm afraid of the law. <laughs> but is it for the glory of God? That's what the Lord is talking about. Okay, verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you understand? I was going to take you. I'm not going to do it because of time. I was going to take you to Romans 3. You go read it. Romans 3, 10 through 18. You go read it. Romans 3, 10 through 18. You go read it at your leisure. That is the world, right? That's the world. It's, it's a reiteration of, of basically what David is saying here in verses 2 and 3. I'll give you... I'll give you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse three of Roman, uh, pardon me, verse eleven of Romans three. I've always loved this. He says, "No one has ever really followed God's path or even truly wanted to." I love it. You know, I know some men like to say they have they have understanding. God says, "You have no understanding of how holy and righteous and awesome I am and what your sin is to me. You have no idea." People say, why did, you know, we were singing that, great job, Josh. We were singing the song on, on nothing but the blood, right? Your sin is so heinous before God, the Son of God had to become a man and bleed out. Do you get some small sense of how heinous your sin and my sin is before a holy God? It's one of the great weaknesses in the modern church. We have no sense of just how holy God is. And just how needy we are of a Savior. Listen, it's what Psalm 53 is about. Psalm 53 is trying to get you to that place where you will run to Jesus, right? Well, you will run to a Savior because you realize you are guilty before this infinitely holy God. Just a few scriptures. I don't have time to go through all of them. Ecclesiastes 9.3 The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts. This is not God's fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart of man is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is not God's fault. It's your fault. And it's my fault. You guys know Mark 7, 20-21. That proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. Yeah, it's like watching the evening news. What proceeds out of the man? Evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, uh, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Beloved, it is not God's fault. It is our fault. I won't read verses 4 and 5. Uh, you heard the text read. Just quickly, we see that the overt and covert atheists have no knowledge 
uh, we see that they hate God's people. They hate the true lover and follower of Jesus. Verse 5, these rebels have no fear of God. It's in that passage in Romans 3. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Right? This text says, uh, these rebels who had no fear will fear greatly. We, got, we know what Revelation 6 says about the second coming of Jesus. God will destroy His enemies who are the enemies of His people and He will put to shame those enemies by the righteousness of His people. Verse 6, let me read that. Here's, here's the payoff of Psalm 53. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores His captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So it's bad theology that got us into this mess, but it's bad anthropology that keeps us in it. Anthropology being the understanding of humankind. What is bad anthropology? It's that you have a small problem with God. It's just a small problem. A little religion, it'll be fine. Don't worry. It'll be all right. You have a small problem with God. God says, You've got a huge problem with me. A huge problem. God looks down from heaven. He says, I don't see one person who seeks for me, who understands who is righteous. There is not one. So, we're talking about bad theology, bad anthropology. Here's some good anthropology. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. You must have a Savior. You must have Jesus Christ. You must have Him. It's what, in essence, David is talking about there in verse 6. The Savior is coming out of Zion. His name is Jesus Christ. He makes His dead people glad. Right? Who can make a dead person glad? God can. You know the great text, Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, how do you get a dead man to do anything? Go down to the mortuary and try to get a dead man to do anything. You can't do anything. You are spiritually dead. You must have someone come and raise you up. It's what Jesus does, beloved. It's what Jesus does. It's a beautiful... Beautiful thing. I'll just close with Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Paul says, You're dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, your fallen nature, you are children of wrath. It's what it's who you are, it's who I am. And then Paul says this. But God! It'll probably be in my Christmas sermon. It's always in my Christmas sermon. But God! But God what? God made us alive! Through Christ Jesus, right? God did that. It's why we, I trust, it's why we gather in this, this redeemed garage on Sunday to, to worship Him, to praise Him, to honor Him, to bring an offering to Him, to sing to Him. As I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was dead. But now I'm alive. I'll close with Isaiah 65.1. In my studies this week, I love this passage. I, it kind of left my mind and I, I stumbled onto it. Let me close with it. 
Isaiah 65.1 God says, I've permitted Myself to be sought by those who do not ask for Me. Praise the Lord. I permitted Myself to be found by those who do not seek Me. Praise the Lord. I said, here am I, here am I, to a people which did not call for Me. I'm done. I am done. But I know my conversion. And I know some of you would have similar stories. I know my conversion. I did not want Jesus Christ. I was a lot like C.S. Lewis. I did not want Him. Lewis ran from <laughs> the hound dog from heaven, the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis talks about it. I didn't want Him. He just came and got me. Beloved, this is the greatest news that has ever fallen on the ears of man. You've got a serious problem with God, and so do I. But here He comes on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. He's going to bleed out. I hope you'll think about that as we celebrate the Lord's table. This is how we do it. Josh or someone will come and play for four or five minutes. You prepare your heart to come and receive the elements during that time. Whenever you're ready, you come up. Take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. I'll stand, I'll read a text, and then we will partake. We have open communion here, so all who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to partake. So as Josh comes, or whoever's going to come, prepare your heart. Andrea's going to come. Thank you, Andrea. Prepare your heart, and let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that Isaiah 65.1 is true. Before I wanted Him, He came for me. <laughs> I've got a huge problem! And Jesus Christ solves it. Let's prepare our hearts to celebrate this awesome Savior and what He's done in our behalf.